0: Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you here at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. We're glad that you were able to join us uh, today here on Reading Through the New Testament. We are now here on the week for April 3rd. Um, We are going to be looking this week at Luke 22 through John 2. Luke 22 through John 2. So at the very tail end, wrapping up the uh, gospel according to Luke, heading into the gospel according to John. And so this week, we're kind of at the key points here in uh, Jesus's life, his ministry, his last uh, days here in the gospel of Luke, his death, his burial, his uh, resurrection, And so we're going to look at that today, really looking especially here at Luke, uh, the last few chapters there. Uh, Next week, I hope to give some more intro uh, stuff about the Gospel of John, um, since we're kind of transitioning. So next week, I'll give more, uh, you know, some more background, uh, some more stuff about what you can think about as we read through the Gospel of John. But you'll be reading the first two chapters, um, which is... Uh, really uh, powerful stuff. Um, the Gospel of John is definitely a. All the books in the Bible are inspired, right? All the books of the Bible are very uh, are precious gifts from God. But the Gospel of John is something unique about it. It's one of the. Um, it's one of the great peaks of of revelation from from God given to us. Uh, the book of John is so powerful. And really gives us some very unique insights into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to wrap up today, though, with Luke. The last part here of Luke's gospel. And um, uh, yeah, so we're going to do that. So here in Luke 22, right? So we've gone through, Jesus has entered into uh, the city he's of Jerusalem. He's foretold the destruction of Jerusalem. Luke 22 leads us now into, here in Luke 22, we've got, you know, Judas is now going to betray Jesus. We see Jesus celebrating the last Passover and celebrating the uh, Lord's Supper for the first time with his disciples he eventually goes out to Gethsemane and prays um, there, and he's arrested. We we know the story, right? He's he's uh, he's denied by Peter. He's mocked uh, before eventually being brought before Pilate and Herod. He's crucified in chapter twenty three. He dies, and then he rises in Luke twenty four. And Luke gives us these really wonderful. Um, uh, historical occurrences here where the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus where Jesus is talking to them. And then again where Jesus comes and speaks to the disciples um, at the very tail end of Luke 24 before ascending um, and going back to uh, heaven. Uh, where he begins his heavenly reign and his work from heaven now. And remember, Luke is the first part of a two-part work, Luke and Acts, right? So you kind of got like a volume one and volume two. Luke is really the story of Jesus's ministry on earth, and Acts is the story of Jesus's ministry from heaven. Um, so in both instances, Jesus is front and center and the one doing the work, in a sense. He does it In his person on earth, in Luke, and then from heaven he works through the person of the Spirit in the lives of his people, especially through the apostles, uh, spreading the gospel, his gospel, um, to the ends of the earth. And uh, then we go into John, of course, where John opens up in his... um, uh, a gospel where he opens up with that, that powerful uh, opening line, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, um, opening up and calling us to listen to the testimony of John the Baptist and of others about who this man is, right? And just a little hint, right? The goal of the gospel of John, he tells us at the very end of the gospel what his goal all along has been. And he tells us this, he says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John's gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he's telling us all of these things so that we may believe in Jesus and may have life In his name, okay, so let's kind of start here as we think about we're reading now Luke 22, opening up right, um, the Passion Week here, and and these are very appropriate verses and and passages of scripture as we as we think about what it as we're going to be coming up here on Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, all of those things coming up. The first thing I want to talk with you about today is from J.C. Ryle, where he talks about the Last Supper in Luke twenty-two, fourteen 14 through uh, 23. And J.C. Ryle um, has a very helpful section again here on this institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus here... Um, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So that's what's going on in Jesus's life, right? This is, uh, he's here, he's uh, pouring out his heart and his life to these disciples in these uh, last moments before his uh, arrest and crucifixion. And J.C. Ryle here has this, uh, this to say in his meditation about the Lord's Supper, which we'll be celebrating, I believe, coming up here fairly soon. Um, And it's so important because the Lord's Supper should be a regular occurrence in the life of the church and in the life of an individual Christian as we partake of, of the bread and the cup in our, in, our, in our fellowship and in our worship together of Christ, this ordinance has been given to us to preach to us, to preach to us of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what it means for us. And in a sense as well, he says that we are declaring it, so we, we declare it to each other, by the fact that we are all doing this together, Christ is teaching us and we're teaching each other and reminding each other of the truth that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he is this for us. So, J.C. Ryle says this about this section of Scripture. These verses contain Luke's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It is a passage which every true Christian will always read with deep interest. How astonishing it seems that an ordinance so beautifully simple at its first appointment, should have been obscured and mystified by man's inventions. What a painful proof it is of human corruption that some of the bitterest controversies which have disturbed the church have been concerning the table of the Lord. Great, indeed, is the ingenuity of man in perverting God's gifts. The ordinance that should have been for his wealth is too often made an occasion of falling. We should notice for one thing in these verses that the principal object of the Lord's Supper was to remind Christians of Christ's death for sinners. In appointing the Lord's Supper, Jesus distinctly tells his disciples that they were to do what they did in remembrance of him. In one word, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. It is eminently a commemorative ordinance. The bread that the believer eats at the Lord's table is intended to remind him of Christ's body given to death on the cross for his sins. The wine that he drinks is intended to remind him of Christ's blood shed to make atonement for his transgressions. The whole ordinance was meant to keep fresh in his memory the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and the satisfaction which that sacrifice made for the sin of the world. The two elements of bread and wine were intended to preach Christ crucified as our substitute under lively emblems. They were to be a visible sermon, appealing to the believer's senses, and teaching the old foundation truth of the gospel, that Christ's death on the cross is the life of man's soul. We shall do well to keep steadily in view this simple view of the Lord's Supper. That a special blessing is attached to a worthy use of it, as well as to the worthy use of every ordinance appointed by Christ, there is, of course, no doubt. But that there is any other means by which Christians can eat Christ's body and drink Christ's blood excepting by faith, we must always steadily deny. He that comes to the Lord's table with faith in Christ may confidently expect to have his faith increased by receiving the bread and wine, but he that comes a, that comes without faith has no right to expect a blessing. Empty he comes to the ordinance, and empty he will go away. The less mystery and obscurity we attach to the Lord's Supper, the better will it be for our souls. We should reject with abhorrence the unscriptural notion that there is any oblation or sacrifice in it that the substance of the bread and wine is at all changed, or that the mere formal act of receiving the sacrament can do any good to the soul. We should cling firmly to the great principle laid down at its institution, that it is eminently a commemorative ordinance, and that reception of it without faith and a thankful remembrance of Christ's death can do us no good. The words of the church catechism are wise and true. It was ordained for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of the death of Christ the declaration of the articles is clear and distinct the means whereby the body of christ is received and taken in the supper is faith the exhortation of the prayer book points out the only way in which we can feed on christ feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving last but not least the caution of the homily is most instructive let us take heed lest of the memoria it lest of the memory it be made a sacrifice Now, what J.C. Ryle there, real quick, I'm doing a little insert here. You'll notice what he mentioned. He mentions the catechism, the articles, the prayer book, and the homily. Those are all specifically related to the um, practices and teachings of the Church of England. Um, in our tr- in our tradition here in America, that would be the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church, and so he's kind of just quoting from some of their documents, trying to prove to people in his context. Because remember, he was a pastor in the Church of England, and so he's trying to tell them and remind them that their own catechism, the articles of their of faith, their uh, prayer book, which is kind of like their uh, the, a book that uh, is a got, contains service as to how they worship in the church, and also the the Homily, which is a collection of of like uh, sermons, um, these are these are all meant uh, to teach, and so he's he's quoting them to teach them that we, whenever Christ is, uh, when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're not eating a sacrifice. This is not re-sacrificing Christ. This is a commemoration and to remind us of Christ's death for sinners. So he had, that's that's where that's coming from. Just so you know, um, and I think that that's that's a good thing to remember. And also, it's very important to remember as he says here that that it that we don't believe that this is something that is a sacrifice resacrificing. This would put us at odds with with other uh, types of Christians or, or other people who would profess to be Christians. Um, and, uh, and additionally, we, we don't believe that simply by taking of this bread in the cup that we automatically receive some kind of spiritual, magical blessing. The blessings come to us only through faith in the promise. And so that's what we believe. And uh, so we can't just think that just because we're eating this or that, um, that it's automatically conveying spiritual nourishment to us. That's not the case. Um, in fact, we need to come to it through faith and with faith in the promises of Christ, um, not by uh, just, just thinking that by doing it, um, we automatically gain some blessing just by performing the act. Okay, so I know that's a lot there real quick, but um, I uh, hope that's helpful. Um, J.C. Ryle continues here about the Lord's Supper and says this. We should notice for another thing in these verses that the observance of the Lord's Supper is a duty binding on all true Christians. The words of our Lord on this point are direct and emphatic. Do this in remembrance of me. To suppose, as some do, that these words are only an injunction to the apostles and all ministers to administer the Lord's Supper to others is a thoroughly unsatisfactory interpretation. The obvious sense of the words is a general precept to all disciples. The command before us is overlooked to a fearful extent. Myriads of members of Christian churches never go to the Lord's table. They would be ashamed, perhaps, to be known as open breakers of the Ten Commandments. Yet they are not ashamed of breaking a plain command of Christ. They appear to think there is no great sin in not being communicants, that is, in not taking the Lord's Supper. They seem utterly unconscious that if they had lived in the days of the apostles, they would not have been reckoned Christians at all. The subject, no doubt, is one which we must beware of mistakes. It is not, of course, to be desired that every baptized person should receive the Lord's Supper as a mere matter of form. It is an ordinance which was intended for the living and not for the dead in sins. But when we see vast numbers of churchgoers never going to the Lord's table and no way ashamed of their neglect of the sacrament, it is clear that there is something very wrong in the state of the churches. It is a sign either of widespread ignorance or of callous indifference to a divine precept. We, when such multitudes of baptized people habitually break a command of Christ, we cannot doubt that Christ is displeased. What are we doing ourselves? This, after all, is the point that concerns us. Do we stay away from the Lord's Supper under a vague notion that there is no great necessity for receiving it? If we hold such an opinion, the sooner we give it up, the better. A plain precept of God's own Son is not to be trifled with in this way. Do we stay away from the Lord's Supper because we are not fit to be communicants? If we do, let us thoroughly understand that we are not fit to dine. Unfit for the Lord's table, we are unfit for heaven and unprepared for the judgment day and not ready to meet God. Surely this is a most serious state of things, but the words before us are clear and explicit. Christ gives us a plain command. If we willfully disobey it, we are in danger of ruining our souls. If we are not fit to obey it, we ought to repent without delay. And that right there is a very uh, powerful thing there to think about, isn't it? Because um, we might think of, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but um, sometimes the Lord's Supper can be quite neglected in churches, and we don't do it. Um, and there are people, you know, maybe they go to church all the time, but they they don't take the Lord's Supper maybe for years. Um, and, and and the thing is, is that's not normal. That shouldn't be normal, we should say. The, the Lord's Supper is intended to preach to us. God gave it to us as a gift, and we neglect it only to our spiritual impoverishment. Um, and like, like Ryle points out, right, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be for believers. And so if you are saying, well, I'm not fit to take the Lord's Supper, then you have to ask your question, yourself the question, am I in the faith? Um, because the Lord's Supper is intended to... Um, you know, we are called to examine ourselves before we partake of it, but also there's this, uh, there's this use of it where it also reconfirms to us these promises of the gospel, reminding us again and again of who Jesus Christ is for us and of the great blessings found in him. Do we take the Lord's Supper seriously, um, or are we just do we think it's just kind of like a, a nice extra add-on to our Christian life? And, and I think, sadly, today, probably, um, more so than maybe in previous uh, generations of Christians, um, the Lord's Supper is kind of taken very, uh, you know, uh, casually. One of the things that's very interesting, if you look at church history, you notice, um, for instance, at the time of the Reformation, it wasn't so much the, the doctrine of baptism that was divisive amongst certain segments in the Reformation, it was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And we kind of look back at that and we think, wow, how could that be? Because you had different groups who had different ideas about um, the significance of the Lord's Supper, um, why it was significant, what was happening um, or not happening in the Lord's Supper. And we look at that today and we think, wow, that's kind of odd. Why in the world would they debate about that? Well, in past generations, they understood that more than we do and appreciated more than we do the importance of this ordinance for the Christian's ordinary life as a believer and uh, the great strength that we can that can be found in, in a proper observance of it, uh, the way that it can strengthen our faith in the risen Christ and also the um, you know it, it, it's I've, you know we've only got baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances. so we've only got two. As I've heard this said before, we've only got two, and we better get them right um, and do the best we can with it. Because Not because they save us themselves, but they are preaching to us and telling us about what salvation the message is. They're preaching to us and calling for faith from us. And if we mess them up or, or aren't practicing them baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, then we do so to our spiritual impoverishment. Um, and to our detriment as believers. Um, We can be believers, but we may not grow as we ought to um, if we are neglecting these means that God's given to us. So, meditating there. About the Lord's Supper. The second thing I want to point to you is again from Luke chapter 22, and this is especially from verse 44, where Jesus is here praying, and it says here, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This reminds us of Jesus' prayer in the garden, right? After celebrating the Lord's Supper, um, Jesus goes out to the garden to pray right before his arrest. Charles Spurgeon has this to say in his morning and evening devotions. If you've never read the morning and evening devotions, I'd recommend them to you. Um, they're relatively short devotions um, that you can read in the morning and the evening for every day of every um, of every day of the month. And so this one is actually taken for the morning of March 23rd and it's based on this verse. Um, So Charles Spurgeon, the the great Baptist preacher from the 1800s, preacher of the gospel, um, has this in his devotion uh, for this day um, and and meditates upon Christ here um, in the garden. He writes this, The mental pressure arising from our Lord's struggle with temptation so forced his frame to an unnatural excitement that his pores sent forth great drops of blood which fell to the ground. This proves how tremendous must have been the weight of sin when it was able to crush the Savior so that he distilled great drops of blood. This demonstrates the mighty power of his love. It is a very pretty observation of old Isaac Ambrose that the gum which exudes from the tree without cutting is always the best. This prant- this precious campfire tree yielded most sweet spices when it was wounded under the knotty whips and when it was pierced by the nails on the cross. But see, it giveth forth its best spice when there is no whip, no nail, no wound. This sets forth the voluntariness of Christ's sufferings, since without a lance the blood flowed freely. No need to put on the leech or apply the knife. It flows spontaneously. No need for the rulers to cry, spring up a well, of itself it flows in crimson torrents. If men suffer great pain of mind, apparently the blood rushes to the heart. The cheeks are pale. A fainting fit comes on. The blood has gone inward as if to nourish the inner man while passing through its trial. But see our our Savior in his agony. He is so utterly oblivious of self that instead of his agony driving his blood to the heart to nourish himself, it drives it outward to bedew the earth. The agony of Christ, inasmuch as it pours him out on the ground, pictures the fullness of the offering which he made for men. Do we not perceive how intense must have been the wrestling through which he passed? And will we not hear its voice to us? Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Behold the great apostle and high priest of our profession, and sweat even to blood, rather than yield to the great tempter of your souls." Spurgeon here is highlighting the fact that Christ the the fact that he sweat these great drops of blood first of all he says proves the mighty power of his love his love is so great um, that his the blood just pours forth from him. And it does so, he kind of is, is, uh, is pointing out, it, it flows from him even before it is, in a sense, forced from him. So like him being cut or beaten or whipped, right? All of those, those gashes and nails, they would have pulled the blood out of him, right? Kind of drew it out of him because they would have punctured him. But here, he sweats great drops of blood and shows forth the mighty power of his love already, um, even even before any of the, the whip or the nail or the wound. He also points out not only the power of his love, but it shows how voluntarily Christ suffered for us of his own free will. Um, he says, without a lance, the blood flowed freely. And he points out here, um, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he, he points out that when men suffer greatly, the blood kind of rushes to the heart. He's kind of playing an imagery image here because sometimes we turn white, right, whenever we're uh, kind of uh, under great stress. And he says it's almost as if the blood has gone inside the man in order to nourish the man, in order to protect him under such great agony. But here in Christ's case, he's not taking care of himself, so to speak. The blood comes right out of him. um, And so pictures the offering which he's made and it comes voluntarily. And he's always thinking about us and not about himself. And then lastly, Spurgeon here calls us to that quote from Hebrews uh, where he says, You have not yet resisted uh, sin, Um, uh, you have not yet uh, shed your blood in resisting sin. Um, And he's pointing to Christ, right? Christ never uh, sinned, and he actually had such a resolution, Jesus Christ did, that he would rather shed blood than sin. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying that should be the same resolution we have. We should rather shed blood than sin. And so calling us now in our Christian lives to be resolutely set against sinning and instead to follow our crucified Savior in his life and in his actions and in all that he is for us. So, uh, setting forth those things to us and kind of meditating there, I think, um, with our Lord's struggle here um, in the garden. Okay, the next thing I want to bring up here is from a Spurgeon sermon. Charles Spurgeon had a sermon um, called The Believing Thief taken from Luke 23, right? So Jesus is in the garden. He's arrested. He's tried. He's convicted. He's crucified. And Luke gives us this wonderful story about the fact that Jesus, we're told elsewhere he was crucified between two thieves. But in this instance, in this story, we're told about the conversation that Jesus has with one of these thieves, or actually with a couple of them, I guess, but how one of the thieves, the robbers hanging on the cross, with him on each side one of them became a believer in jesus christ um here and so uh, luke uh 2 through 43 right um the the thief looks to jesus and says jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he jesus said to him truly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise and so what a wonderful story because notice what salvation is again salvation is in asking jesus to remember me not in me remembering jesus it is because jesus takes a thought for me and i should want to remember jesus and i strive to but salvation is ultimately found in the fact that jesus remembers me jesus looks to me jesus saves me it is ultimately from him down to us Down to me, His great love and compassion and power to save is shown here in the believing thief. So Spurgeon has a few things here to uh, uh, note here, and I think these are uh, this is kind of a this is really good stuff here. So he says this: Note the note first of all that this crucified thief was our Lord's last companion on earth. Note that this crucified thief that we read about here was our Lord's last companion on earth. That's a fascinating thought, isn't it? The last companion Jesus had on the earth was not one of the royalty of the earth or whatever, but the guy closest to him, right on the other cross, was a thief, a robber. Spurgeon says this, What sorry company our Lord selected when he was here? He did not consort with the religious Pharisees or the philosophic Sadducees, but he was known as the friend of publicans and sinners. How I rejoice at this. It gives me assurance that he will not refuse to associate with me. So Spurgeon here kind of helps us to see who this last companion of Christ was. He says, first of all, the last companion of Christ on earth was a sinner and no ordinary sinner. He says this, none of you are excluded from the infinite mercy of Christ, however great your iniquity. If you believe in Jesus, he will save you. Secondly, this man, this this thief was not only a sinner, he was a sinner newly awakened, right? He was he hadn't really believed in Jesus until now, until he's hanging on the cross here at his last moments. Um and sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes we, we look at suspicion with deathbed conversions or we think about people who have just come to faith and, and whatever. But this guy was brand new. He wasn't a veteran Christian. And instead of looking for a Peter or a, or a James or a John, who was a bit more of a veteran believer to be crucified alongside with, Jesus looks at this guy who's a brand new Christian, a brand new sinner newly awakened thirdly he says this man who was the last companion of christ upon earth was a sinner in misery look at him here right he's suffering for sins um, that he himself has committed he did all these things right and he says that right before here in beginning in chapter or in verse 40 he says this do you to the other uh thief he says do you not fear god since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So he's in misery. He's suffering. And you can imagine the cross. That is a very painful death, isn't it? And this man's in misery. He's a sinner in misery. And he's looking upon eternity. And he's wondering what's going to happen to his soul. And he's looking at this other man on the middle cross. And and looking at him and thinking... Uh, and, And kind of looking at this guy and realizing this guy doesn't deserve to be here. And things are starting to open up to him. That's what's happening here with this man. He also, Spurgeon points out, this man whom Christ saved at last, his last companion, was a man who could do no good works. Spurgeon writes this, If salvation had been by good works, he could not have been saved, for he was fastened hand and foot to the tree of doom. It was all over with him as to any act or deed of righteousness. He could say a good word or two, but that was all. He could perform no acts. And if his salvation had depended on an active life of usefulness, certainly he never could have been saved. He was a sinner also, who could not exhibit a long-enduring repentance for sin, for he had so short a time to live. He could not have experienced bitter convictions lasting over months and years for his time was measured by moments and he was on the borders of the grave. His end was very near and yet the Savior could save him and did save him so perfectly that the sun went down, that that the sun went not down till he was in paradise with Christ. Our salvation is entirely of grace apart from works of the law and here This man on the cross, right next to Jesus, he can do no good works. He has no time. Now, we do believe, right, that he, in the short time he had, he grew at some level in sanctification um, in the short time he had, but he had no time to go and make everything, quote, right, right? with everybody else he could not go ask for apologies from people if he needed to do that or or to show love to people or to join the church or to get baptized or to take the lord's supper or to to do any number of things that are good things but he couldn't do those things jesus saves him despite the fact that he can't do any of those things and we are saved apart from works of those kinds as well Fifthly, he says this this sinner was one who believed in Jesus and confessed his faith. That was the companion here, and he did do that, didn't he? He says, This man here, we are here justly for our own sins, but this man's done nothing wrong. Sixthly, this sinner breathed the humble but fitting prayer, Lord, remember me. That is a prayer of salvation. Notice about that prayer, and I'm not this isn't from Spurgeon, this is this is straight from me, but he calls him lord recognizing him as his superior as his king as uh the one to whom he owes allegiance and he says lord please remember me and and salvation is found in this prayer because he says lord remember me please lord i'm i might forget you lord uh you're going to your kingdom please remember me when you get there and Jesus saves him by remembering him. This sinner casts the whole weight of his confidence and looks entirely away from himself to the other man hanging on the cross there in the middle. And he, he, he's putting all of his chips upon that man in the middle cross. He's putting all of his hope, all of his dreams, everything into that man's hands. And counting on him to keep his word. Counting on him to be the Lord. Counting on him to do it all. That is what salvation is. Salvation is looking outside of ourselves, apart from ourselves, apart from our feelings, apart from our works, apart from our intelligence, apart from our pedigree, apart from our past, apart from anything that we are, and looking at him. And seeing in him. And looking at him and saying, Lord, remember me and Jesus gives that wonderful answer today you will be with me in paradise. So Spurgeon points out this man um, was our was our Lord's last companion here on earth and secondly he points that this man was our Lord's companion at the gate of paradise. And you think about that that is a powerful thing he was the last man, Jesus in a sense the last guy he hung out with on on the earth was this believing thief. And he was the first guy that he brought into the kingdom in a sense, right? Um, He was going to be right there with him at the gate of paradise. What an amazing story it is. And then Spurgeon says, note the Lord's sermon to us from all of this. Note the Lord's sermon to all of us. He says, first of all, note this, the glory of Christ in salvation. Spurgeon writes this. He is ready to save at the last moment. He was just passing away. "'His foot was on the doorstep of the Father's house. "'Up comes this poor sinner, the last thing at night, "'at the eleventh hour, and the Savior smiles "'and declares that he will not enter "'except with this belated wanderer. "'At the very gate he declares "'that this seeking soul shall enter with him. "'There was plenty of time for him to have come before. "'You know how apt we are to say, "'You have waited to the last moment. "'I am just going off, and I cannot attend to you now.' Our Lord had his dying pangs upon him, and yet he attends to the perishing criminal and permits him to pass through the heavenly portal in his company. Jesus easily saves the sinners for whom he painfully died. Jesus loves to rescue sinners from going down into the pit. You will be very happy if you are saved, but you will not be one half so happy as he will be when he saves you. See how gentle he is. His hand no thunder bar bears, no terror clothes his brow, no bolts to drive our guilty souls to fiercer flames below. He comes to us full of tenderness, with tears in his eyes, mercy in his hands, and love in his heart. Believe him to be a great savior of great sinners. I have heard One, of one I have heard of one who had received great mercy, who went about saying, "He is a great forgiver," and I would have you say the same. You shall find your transgressions put away and your sins pardoned once for all if you now trust him. That's beautiful. I love that part where he says, uh, um, he says, if you will be very happy if you are saved, but you will not be one half so happy as he will be when he saves you. Our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, his heart beats with compassion that he shed forth for us upon the cross of Calvary. So so wonderful, and Jesus himself is the greatest magnet to pull men to himself, isn't he? He draws all kinds of men to himself, pulls them. They come willingly, and yet it's irresistible. Jesus is an irresistible Savior to those who have their eyes opened, and um, we would want nothing else. Than him nothing on earth that we desire besides him our heart and our flesh may fail but christ is the strength and the portion of our souls forever so the glory of Christ's salvation that's the first part of the lord's sermon to us from all this secondly faith and its permitted attachment and its immediate power talks about the power of faith Uh, here. It talks about the nearness of eternal things, right? This man was right on the doorstep of eternity and was saved. And similarly, it's a good reminder to all of us that eternity is very, very near. We don't need to keep living our lives as if we think eternity is some way off thing. Eternity is very close. It was very close for this man, and it's very close for us. He says also, if you have believed in Jesus, you are prepared for heaven. And this is not an exceptional case. So Spurgeon there in a very wonderful sermon there, um, calling us to see, to see there um, the power of the cross and of the salvation that Jesus gives us um, in in His Son. Okay, so lastly here, lastly but not least, um, I want to. Um, I'm kind of looking at my paperwork here. Um, Okay, yeah, here we go. Okay, Um, let's do this, the last part, the resurrection here in Luke 24. So we got the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Luke 24. Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried, and yet he's raised again from uh, the dead. Um, So let's see what he uh, has to say. J.C. Ryle here writing to us uh, about Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 where we see that on the first day of the week, um, these uh, women go to the tomb and take some spices with them. And uh, J.C. Ryle writes this. The resurrection of Christ is one of the great foundation stones of the Christian religion. In practical importance, it is second only to the crucifixion. The chapter we have now begun directs our mind to the evidence of the resurrection. It contains an unanswerable proof that Jesus not only died, but rose again. We see in the verses before us the reality of Christ's resurrection. We read that upon the first day of the week, certain women came to the tomb in which the body of Jesus had been laid in order to anoint him. But when they came to the place, they found the stone rolled away and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. This simple fact is the starting point in the history of the resurrection of Christ. On Friday morning, his body was safe in the tomb. On Sabbath morning, his body was gone. By whose hands had it been taken away? Who had removed it? Not surely the priests and scribes and other enemies of Christ. If they had had Christ's body to show in disproof of his resurrection, they would gladly have shown it. Not the apostles and other disciples of our Lord. They were far too much frightened and dispirited to attempt such an action, and the more so when they had nothing to gain by it. One explanation and one only can meet the circumstance of the case. That explanation is the one supplied by the angels in the verse before us. Christ had risen from the grave to seek him in the sepulcher was seeking the living among the dead. He had risen again and was soon seen alive and conversing in the body by many credible witnesses. Now real quick, I noticed I notice JC Raul here says on Sabbath morning, his body was gone. Um, I'm not sure if he's referring to the Sunday and calling the Lord first day of the Lord's day, the Sabbath or how he's referring to that. But either way, I'm not sure what he means by that, but um, you get the point still. Right. Okay. Um, so let's keep going here. The fact of our Lord's resurrection rests on evidence which no infidel can ever explain away. It is confirmed by testimony of every kind, sort and description. The plain, unvarnished story which the gospel writers tell about it is one that cannot be overthrown. The more the account they give is examined, the more inexplicable will the event appear unless we accept it as true. If we choose to deny the truth of their account, we may deny everything in the world. It is not so certain that Julius Caesar once lived as it is that Christ rose again. Let us cling firmly to the resurrection of Christ as one of the pillars of the gospel. It ought to produce in our minds a settled conviction of the truth of Christianity. Our faith does not depend merely on a set of texts and doctrines. It is founded on a mighty historical fact which the skeptic has never been able to overturn. It ought to assure us of the certainty of the resurrection of our own bodies after death. If our master has risen from the grave, we need not doubt that his disciples shall rise again at the last day. Above all, It ought to fill our hearts with a joyful sense of the fullness of gospel salvation. Who is he that shall condemn us? Our great surety has not only died for us, but risen again. He has gone to prison for us and come triumphantly forth after atoning for our sins. The payment he made for us has been accepted. The work of satisfaction has been perfectly accomplished. No wonder that Peter exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? One Peter one three. Did you like the fact, by the way, that I said one Peter? I know people um, kind of make fun of that a little bit, but hey, it's okay. That's the British way to do it. You say one Peter, two Corinthians, two Samuel, one Samuel. It's totally appropriate and it saves time, right? Because you got two syllables to say second right? That's that's two syllables. Instead, you can just say two, two Samuel, two Peter, instead of second Samuel. It's just easier, easier. Um, try, it, try it at home. You know what I mean? Um, try that at home. Um, so uh, there the resurrection. And as we think about resurrection time right now with Easter coming up, that's very true, isn't it? Um, Pastor Tim has pointed out before how Uh, This time of year, people are always trying to poke holes in the resurrection story and the the historical accounts that we have in the gospel narratives and the claim of the New Testament writers and of the Christian church that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. This Jesus of Nazareth was dead on a cross on a Friday afternoon, was put into a grave, and then on the first day of the week was no longer there how did that body disappear? Now, that's, that is the question. We as Christians believe that body was not there because that body had been raised again by the power of God. Other people have many different theories um, and different ideas about how this could have happened. We disagree with those. We think they don't hold water. We think that the uh, arguments they bring are not satisfactory. And really, we as Christians should be, um, we should not be afraid to stand up on the historical veracity of our faith. These facts are, uh, remember what Paul says right in 1 Corinthians, notice again, 1, not first, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says there that, um, if jesus christ was not risen from the grave then our faith your faith is in vain so if this historical fact is false hypothetically speaking right if this was false then our faith and everything that we've placed our confidence in everything we thought was true is not true and uh, so paul there is is in a sense giving the hypothetical and saying you know hypothetically speaking if you could disprove that the body of Jesus did not raise again from the dead, then you could say Christianity is a sham and a fake and not true historically. And we need to be okay saying that, I think, Um, because our religion stands or falls upon this historical fact. Did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? If he did, changes everything. If he did, it changes everything. If he didn't, hypothetically speaking, then Paul says we are of most of all people most to be pitied. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. Similarly, we we ourselves, um, you know, we we need to to we can. I think that's one of the things is is, is I've heard it said before. Um, if you've got unbelieving friends or people who are and and not every person's going to do this right, but if you know people who are who are looking at religion right, um, and trying to see what they think about religions, invite them to come to Christianity first, because you can say, listen, you can disprove Christianity, hypothetically speaking, right? You c- if you can disprove the resurrection, then you don't have to look anymore at Christianity, because our whole religion stands or falls upon whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose again from the grave. Other religions don't have that kind of historical connection, right? Um, Buddhism, Islam, other religions, they're not really historically verifiable. Their ideas, they may be good, good. They may be, I mean, whatever ideas you may think they are. The problem is, is our, our, our message is a message rooted in what God has done in history. It's an event That has happened, a news event, a news report of what's happened. And what Ryle here is calling us to is to realize the, the importance of the resurrection and the reality of it. The Christian church stands today because we are convinced of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. We have set our hope upon him. And that is the hope of the church. Okay, well, I was going to read a little bit from John's uh, gospel this week, but I think I will hold that back. So next week, I may read some from John 1, just because it's going to be really, 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 really hard to pick and choose stuff from John's gospel, because John's gospel is powerful, and also I believe J.C. Ryle, I think on the John portion of the Expository Thoughts, I think I, th- I, I could be wrong, but I think it's there's a lot more material on that. And uh, needless to say, there's going to be a lot of great material from the Gospel of John from these other writers to help us meditate upon. So um, we'll see what happens there because there's going to be a lot to pick and choose from. Uh, we'll have to kind of filter it, but it's exciting. Thank you for reading the New Testament with us. I hope that you're growing in Christ as you're reading it. Um, I hope you're drawing closer to the Savior. Um, and, and my hope and prayer for all of us is as we read this together as a church, as the body of Christ here at this location, we will grow closer, grow closer to Christ and to each other, that we will know him better, reflect his glory, and be conformed to his image. Thank you so much for uh, listening to this, and uh, yeah, well, take care, and God bless.